Hey, does your marketing effort include asking questions? Well, I sure hope it does, because when you ask questions, you provide a better service and product to your patients and members. We thought we'd take this one step further. In our new software, our updated software, Trust Driven Care, which you can check out at trustdrivencare.com, we added in a whole survey module. Now, why did we add this in? Well, over the last five years, surveys have become wildly popular as a great way to get information from prospective clients and even current clients. You can ask surveys about how are we doing? What exercises do you like the most? You can even send a survey a year after somebody got discharged to ask them what they remember about your office. Those things can help refine and build your marketing efforts. They can also help refine and build your customer service efforts. But we thought they were so important, we added an entire module of surveys to our software. Based on the questions, automation can happen. Based on the answers they give, you can send them access to a course, or you could send that person into a different website, or you could automatically register a task for somebody to reach out to them and call them. Let's say if they weren't satisfied or their back still hurts, give them a call. But surveys are so powerful, and that's one of the new features, just one of them, that we added to Trust Driven Care. It'll help you build the trust with your patients, clients, and community, and help grow your office. So if you're interested, check it out at trustdrivencare.com. Hey, welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. This is Dr. Josh Satterley, and I'm excited for you to be on this journey. Look, when I started my Clinic Gym Hybrid back in 2013, I didn't have a place to go for resources. That's why we're doing this podcast. That's why we're here. I hope you dig this interview. Let's jump in. Boom. I'm joined again today by our number one repeat guest from San Diego, and that is Michelle Desser. Michelle, how are you? I'm great, Josh. How are you today? I'm great. It's always great to talk to you. And unfortunately, we should have been recording the last five <laughs> minutes because we had some great stories and great discussions. But uh, Michelle is a certified athletic trainer and uh, and the foremost instructor of the SFMA. Michelle, how many SFMA courses have you taught at this point? Oh, my goodness. I'm not sure that I even have that running tally. But, hundreds? Uh, at hundreds. least. Yeah, hundreds. Yeah. yeah. Maybe thousands. Yeah. That's very exciting. When did you start teaching uh, the SFMA? Uh, in 2010. Wow. And you've seen it uh, change quite a bit. I know that uh, it the manual has changed, the methods have changed, a lot of things have changed and simplified and been refined, which is exciting. And I'm sure also a headache for you as the person who has to deal with everybody's manual now looking different. <laughs> you know what? That's a challenge that I don't mind just simply because our goal is to make it easier, streamline it. And if we can do that, then it's worth the time putting into that manual. But uh, yeah, organizing uh, Dr. Greg Rose's, Dr. Cook's, Dr. Kiesel's thoughts into a manual was maybe one of the hardest tasks that I've ever uh, <laughs> undertook. <laughs> I consider myself a translator of their ideas. <laughs> yeah. When you look at uh, Kyle Kiesel, it's like, oh, this guy's a, a PhD researcher and practicing physical therapist. And you're like, that's the easy one to deal with. <laughs> that's that's the that's just a lot of information. Uh, I'm sure that it was an exciting time. Yeah. So uh, there have been a lot of changes in education and uh, professional education, certainly since the outbreak of COVID. Um, uh, and maybe we can talk about that for a little bit. Um, so COVID busted out in what March, middle of March in 2020, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you had to cancel some some courses and you know josh we we were actually the weekend right before the world shut down we were actually teaching an sfma in newark new jersey and that was when you know like people were starting to talk there was just this you know overall 
concern starting to grow. And right. I remember me and the four instructors that were there kind of looked at each other. We're like, you think this is going to be anything or is this just an overreaction to like something that's mm-hmm. going on? And then I think literally a week later, you know, the world shut down and we're like, okay, this is something like, this is something we need yeah. to be aware of. That's funny. Well, thank God you didn't get stuck in Newark, New Jersey. No offense to our energy user friends. That's not where you want to ride out the storm, right? (laughs) That's true too. Although I did live in New York City for a while, so I would have been comfortable, you know? Yeah. Well, as a, if you go back to that time, so everything shuts down, everybody's at home. And then I I think, you know, after a few weeks, places like healthcare clinics become, uh, what do you call it? Um, What was the essential, right? Mm -hmm. And they open back up and, uh, and when, how long did it take before you started getting some pressure about like, hey, is education going to come back or what about this course or what do I do? You know, I think there was that overall sense of um, fear, right? That everybody yeah, had about sure. being around others and whatnot. And, you know, we didn't actually get interest in live courses probably for a year, year and a half afterwards, but almost immediately we got those requests of, what are you going to do in the meantime to help us get your education? And, you know, as the director of education at Functional Movement Systems, all of a sudden I had this new task of how do I transform our live courses into a valuable experience for people, maybe in an online capacity or a virtual capacity until this storm that we're riding through, you know, starts to ease up. And, and at the time, I mean, we all remember there was no definitive timeline on on when things are going to be open. If you remember, it was, oh, things will be back to normal next week. Oh, things will be back to normal next week. And then all of a sudden, two week, eight, nine two months weeks later, to the curve, right? <laughs> yeah. Like- yeah. It just, uh, it kind of got crazy. And, you know, I have to admit on on our team, I was probably one of the ones who was most hesitant about transferring into a virtual um, online capacity yeah. because I've been, <laughs> like you said, to all these SFMA courses, um, FMS courses, I see the value of being on site and learning hands-on. And I was having a hard time wrapping my head around how are we going to make this effective for individuals um, to learn from, from a virtual capacity. And that that was a challenge. Yeah. Well, it's funny uh, for those listening, you know, I also teach with Michelle and uh, I've taught a few SFMAs, certainly not the number she has, but I can remember at one of our instructor meetings, the one of the main focuses is how do we get people out of their chairs watching slides and more into doing like when we switched to what we call the pod format and the whole role was don't worry about sitting and watching PowerPoint slides, get hands on. And so you spent, I don't know what that was, two or three years before COVID outbreak, two or three years going, you know, get hands-on, go hands-on, more hands-on, let's get people active, let's get them actually practicing. Hey, let's switch them up in groups. And we're coming up with new and novel ways to, hey, you're going to work with this group on Monday or on Saturday, and then this group on Sunday. And and you and we're really good about, not, I mean, for the second half of Saturday and the entire day of Sunday, you're not sitting in a PowerPoint start like type format, which I think was very different. And I'm, it's like, I just picture you going, wow, I really did it. We got them up. We got them hands on. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah, hey, the brakes came on this all the way to a webcam. And you're like, damn it. <laughs> yeah. And even like, you know, there were some um, groups, companies that brought us in during the COVID months to do private courses for their staff, which, you know, these are people who are working together on a regular basis. And um But what we found is even what you were just talking about, it was pick one partner and this is your partner for two days. Like there wasn't Mm -hmm. the the interaction between multiple people because, you know, still we didn't know enough about what COVID was to be, you know, interacting at great levels. And 
it changed even that dynamic with people who knew each other, people who worked with each other. And, you know, we had that when we got back to live courses, how to have a boundary between the learning experience, but also the boundary between what is safe based on guidelines that are being reported to us. And, you know, the first couple of live courses we did that open to the public were, um, they were definitely challenging and they were, uh, let's go. I was very nervous um, just because you have those moments where you're just like, okay, this is how we used to do things. Like you just said, and it was in my mind, it was kind of perfect. Like I felt like we found the medium of like, what is an ideal learning situation? We capture all styles of learning and the person leaves with the ability to be able to implement the SFMA right away. Well, now how do we transfer that over into this new world that we're living in where you're minimizing contact, you're, you know, hand sanitizing, spraying down tail every time you touch something. So it was right. definitely a challenge to get back to the the live learning um, aspect of it at first. Yeah. That there are so many things about that. Cause I can, again, going back, like teaching people the lumbar lock position. And it's like the number one feedback is get closer to your patient, get mm-hmm. up against them, you know? And it's like, Hmm, do we really want to use those words anymore? But, uh, yeah. Oh gosh. So, and like you have one person in the class that sniffled <laughs> and it just like created yeah. chaos amongst the group, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The caught the I remember I got on an airplane and coughed one time and I was like, well, I'm gonna get kicked off this flight. Yeah. Asked me to leave, you know. With I mean due reason, people were sick, right? And so our job is to keep people safe, but also provide them with an educational experience. Yeah. And you know, that that was a, a very fine line to walk for a little bit. Yeah. So um as you went through and, and developed this virtual format, you know, it's in, I'm thinking about it, it's interesting because one of the core fundamentals of the, of the SFMA is not necessarily what hands-on technique do you do, but just follow a checklist, run the system and, you know, check it active versus passive is, is a huge piece. Well, active is no problem virtually, right? Like you, and I'm sure you've even had along your, in your career, how many online webcam-based assessments have you done on people or talk people through it over the phone? I've done that. People are like, oh, this hurts. And I ask them, hey, well, okay, touch your toes, put your arms up, lean back, like turn right, turn left. What what hurt and what was more difficult to do? And it's amazing how much information you can glean just from that. It's not a complete diagnosis. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's certainly better than somebody just saying, oh, I have pain here. What's the diagnosis? And uh, so as you went to put it into a virtual format, I'm sure you're rewarded with that stuff, but what'd you learn along the way of getting into that virtual process? You know, our our job at SFMA courses is really to provide the attendees with a movement library, right? Seeing multiple examples of different ways people move so that we can start to open that horizon of looking at movement as a whole and looking at each person as an individual versus just lumping them in, into some category, right? And so when we started to approach the virtual courses, um, we thought one of the most important things was bringing in actual models or patients t- to be able to show different movement on different people. So like you mentioned, like the lecturing slides, those are great and there's value to that. But our job really is to just say, here's some real life examples. Here's here's what you're going to see when you go into the clinic. These are um, ideas that are going to be happening. And then, you know, the SFMA, the, the breakout logic, it's it's pretty, it's our standard operating procedure, right? Like that you said, it's check, check, check. Um, walking through that with the 
individual examples that came up, I think was such a huge priority to us too, versus just showing tests. Because, you know, anybody can do tests, but why are you doing them and what's the purpose and why are we there? So our our main goal, my main goal with the virtual SFMA was to be able to bring examples in um, and really show people and increase, improve that movement literacy, um, even if it's in a virtual capacity. You know, watching us take somebody through it was better than us just talking about it in a way. Yeah. So that was a huge priority. Slow down real quick. When you said we, you know, you used a lot of words that I think make sense to somebody who's taken the course, but in yeah. case somebody's listening that hasn't, when you say movement literacy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that sounds like um, uh, a phrase that politicians use to sell like a bill that's going to improve education or something, right? Like, Hi, my name is Michelle Desser. And if you're interested <laughs> in movement literacy, <laughs> exactly. You can trust me. You know. yeah. So what do you mean by that? When, when we're talking about somebody in an SFMA course, what is the, the impact of that or the purpose of that? Well, I think, you know, we always say this, the difference between myself, between you, between some of our other lead instructors and those attending is that a sense of humor. And well, that's true too. We're just cool cool people, right? (laughs) But um, is that we've seen thousands of SFMAs. So we can identify dysfunction quite quickly because we know what functional looks like because we've seen it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we don't spend as much time laboring over why are they doing this correctly? Why aren't they doing this correctly? Because we've gone through the repetitions. We've seen so right. many different movement styles that our our book and our brain is so large that we're just like, okay, that's dysfunctional and this is why very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I always say, of course, is I think it's important to see what functional looks like because once yeah. you see functional, it's easy to recognize dysfunctional. But really that movement literacy is being able to have enough resources to pull from to be able to make quick decisions based on what you're seeing and all the amazing ways that people will compensate through movements because our brains are smart. They're going to figure out how to do something, whether it's the right way or not, uh, because we move every day. Movement's not perfect, right? But we are trying to um, prepare our attendees to be able to look at somebody quite quickly. Um, You and I know this, but I think one of the uh, criticisms, so to speak, against the SFMA is that it's time-consuming. And it can be if you analyze every single thing, but that's not the point of it, right? The point is to be able to look at something very quickly, make a decision and move forward to get to an ultimate diagnosis. The more people that they see, the more people that they work with, the more movement patterns they witness, the faster they're going to be able to do that and the faster they'll be with the SFMA. Yeah. Going back to the movement literacy thing, I think it's interesting. As you said that, I've never thought about it that way. But as you said that, like literacy, like if you... Like I remember reading a Harry Potter book and you only understand how fantastic this world that she's laying out is if you've read a bunch of other books and that weren't fantastic. Right. And they weren't um, because I think what's interesting with the Harry Potter thing is, I don't know, 60 percent of it is the story of a kid just going to school. But it's this fantastic school that has this and that like you go into cafeteria, but the candles float. It's the candles floating that's different, not the, you know people go into a cafeteria to eat together all the time. And so, yeah, but if that's the first book you've ever read, you're just like, I don't know, I guess that's what happens, you know, in, in, in cafeterias. And I think it's the same thing. If you've never asked your patients to, you know, do a toe touch and then, you know, multi-segmental center back bend and then rotate right and left. And you just haven't cataloged all those. You don't know how crazy it is when you, what you're going to see, you know, somebody that can turn 
perfectly to the left and then you ask them to turn right and they go five degrees and stop. Mm-hmm. And, and somebody that, you know, goes to touch their toes and doesn't have any posterior weight shift or doesn't move their butt backwards. And you're like, how, what do you fall forward every time you pick up the keys or something? What the hell? <laughs> yeah. But then the commonists just go, all right, let me turn to the next chapter and keep going because this is, this is great, but it's just part of the story that's being told. So first and foremost, I secretly want to be a wizardist. So I definitely am a Harry Potter fan. Well, those that know you secretly do not ever want you to have any more power than you already do. So that would be. So I appreciate that you drew from Harry Potter because, you know, big, big fan right here. Uh, Yes, I do have a wand, you know, (laughs) so, um, but second, like, I, I just think that we oftentimes get in our own head of what we think we're going to see too. Like we watch somebody walk in the door and we already make assumptions about it. And I say this all the time. It's okay to assume it's not okay to start treating upon those assumptions, right? Like when somebody walks in, I might make some generalized statements and, and even when I'm going through the SFMA top tier, you know, your, your global movements, I've already in my head have an idea of what I might see, but that doesn't stop me from asking them to do it. Like, I'm not just going to assume they're dysfunctional because I've been proven wrong. Like by just simply saying, go ahead and bend forward, touch your toes to somebody who I did not think would be able to do it. And they did it great. They did it perfectly, you know, or rotate, like you said, one way, but not the other. Um, And they're not even aware of it sometimes. So there is that piece of awareness that comes with the SFMA top tier too, is all of a sudden now they're aware of what their movement patterns are and maybe things that they can't do. I've told a story, I told this in many courses, but I had a woman in my office, she was like 83 years old. And I said, I'm going to ask you to squat all the way down if you can. And she looked at me and she's like, well, I don't, I don't think I've done that in like 25 years. And I was like, oh my God, you know, like, and maybe yeah. she hadn't. And so I asked her to squat and I you were ready to all, catch her. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is going to look like garbage. Like it's horrible. Mm-hmm. She squats down and calmly at the bottom of the squat looks up at me and says, is this what you mean? I mean, it was like a moment you don't have that often in clinic, yeah. certainly not with an 83 year old. She's just sitting down there like, is this what you mean? I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, my assumptions were, I would thought this would be the most horrible pattern. It wasn't perfect, but it was close. And yeah. I was like, gosh, darn. You I know? think that's what I love about the SFMA the most. I know we've gotten off course here a little bit, but yeah. um, removing professional Welcome bias. Welcome to the SFMA the- fan <laughs> show. <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> um, removing professional bias um, from yeah. the equation. And just letting people show you what they're capable of. And, right. you know, going back to like the, the courses and virtual and online, I, I just feel like we hit as a whole healthcare communities have fallen in this trap of treating people based on their diagnosis and looking them as a shoulder, looking at them as a hip, looking at them as an ankle versus looking at them as a person. And what are they doing every single day? Because they're moving. They're they're getting up. They're getting out of bed. They're going to the bathroom. They're brushing their teeth. They're they're driving. They're going up and downstairs. What are they doing? And when we fall into that trap of just looking at one region, we're missing the whole picture, I believe. And I that is one place I think the SFMA is just beneficial. And from that, going back to the, like the virtual online capacity. I do think that we were able to translate that over to those platforms, which I think is sometimes hard with education of the value of why we're looking at the person as a whole versus just looking at a region or doing an assessment of the yeah. ankle, the foot or whatnot. And I like if I had to do like a one segment, you know, why is the SFMA beneficial? 
treat the person as a whole, right? They're a person like, and we're not all the same. Like no two people are the same, right? No two fingerprints are the same. So for me to assume that their low back pain is because of their hip, that's just an assumption, right? I, I need to look at them as a whole and see what might be going on. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I've been diving into a bunch of research on um, patient communication and this study sticks out in my head as you say that the, that the bi- biggest feedback from the patients was, I wish my doctor would ask me more about, uh, what, what did they say? They said, I wish they would focus on how I feel rather than what I feel. Mm-hmm. Meaning like, hey, you have low back pain, Michelle. Is that, you know, just think about us and our relationship. You, if you had severe low back pain right now, it's not a threat to your employment. You know, and if mm-hmm. it was a threat to your employment, like if you were a landscaper or, you know, you did something else, there's all of a sudden way more pressure on, you know, how, how fast you can get resolved, how, how much more uh, quickly you might defer to surgery. Cause you're like in your mind, oh, that'll keep me employed faster and I can feed my family or whatever. And, you know, and then uh, I, I think you've gone through, I've got, I've gone through battles with both my parents of being really sick. And it's like, you have to make these decisions on like what, what is important here, you know, them being home with us and, and feeling loved or a yet another round of chemotherapy or yet yeah. another round of hospital-based treatment where nobody can be in the room because the infection rate's too high. And it's like, okay. I remember having a conversation with one of my mom's uh, doctors, like, is she going to make it out of this? I was yeah. like, no, it's very low likelihood. It's like, then what are we doing? Like, why are, why are we at the hospital? Like take her home. Well, she's going to die. It's like, yeah, but she's going to, yeah. Like you said it yourself. Like the end goal. We have that same thing with my dad. Have yeah. a cookie. Like he wants a cookie. Give him a cookie. He's 87 years right. you know, Like let him enjoy life for a little bit, you know? Right. Like holding back that cookie is going to add on nine, nine weeks of life yeah. or something. Like give me yeah. a freaking break. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing with these movement things is like stepping back and saying, like, okay, this person wants to do X or they identify as Y or whatever. Maybe it's in their identity. Maybe, you know, we've had those patients like, uh, Oh, I, I want to play tennis. It's the only thing I have five kids. It's the only thing I can do to get me away from the house or, yeah. you know, all those things matter, but it's so easy to stay into that. Oh, this is a low back pain patient. Therefore I shall treat them as a low back pain patient. And they are low back pain. Like, yeah. No, the- that's Nancy. She's actually a school teacher, you know, and she also has low back pain. One of the things, um, you know, I've taken a lot from Dr. Gregor's, but one of the things that I took from him in my own clinical practice was do the S of me and say, how can I help you? What are your goals? Because too often I think the patient loses their voice, right? Like, so what is your goals? Okay. Obviously you want to be out of pain, but what are we trying to get you back to doing? And, and I think, you know, there is a misconception couple with S of me. And one of them is that we're expecting somebody to be functional head to toe movement perfection. And that's not what we're after. Our goal is to identify where there's stress in their system, reduce that stress so that they can remove the pain and they can keep active doing the things that they love to do. Um, I said this earlier, movement's not perfect. It depends on what you eat, where you sleep, all these things that might happen. But our goal is really just how can we keep you doing the things that you love to do? And everybody's a little bit different with that. And you know, Josh, I got in the SFMA. Yes, I'm I'm part of the company now, Functional Movement Systems. I'm the director of education. But the whole reason I got head into of the this, fan club, on yeah, this, I'm head on of this the fan uh, podcast. Club. Yeah, <laughs> I got there because I took a course because I wanted to be a better clinician. And my goal was always just to be better, to do better, to service the people. I think it's such a um, overlooked. Uh, 
um, concept sometimes that somebody is literally placing their health in our hands. And we sometimes take that for granted. And I've always tried to focus on not taking that for granted. How can I best help the person in front of me? Mm -hmm. And I got into the SFMA and the FMS and, you know, functional movement systems because it made me a better clinician. And then I became so invested in it that obviously I am where I am at. I drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak. But the reason was, is because I was in everybody's shoes. I was a clinician and I just wanted to be better at what I did. And that this helped me get to that point. And it helped me really help people, you know, and, and I think that that concept of trying to make somebody functional head to toe, that's just not it, but managing your findings, managing their lifestyle so that they can keep doing the Mm -hmm. things that they want to do is really where the gold in the SFMA lives. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, going back to something we spoke of earlier, I don't want this conversation for people to feel like, Oh, it's just a, it's just a theory or whatever. Like, it starts out like anything, like if you want to get good at karate, like you don't understand the bigger picture until you just get to a bunch of reps of punch, punch, block, block, kick, kick, and then punch Michelle and she punches back or kick there. She kiss like you have to have that interaction, get those reps. And then all of a sudden the, the bigger things reveal themselves. Right. And I remember I had this martial arts instructor when I was in like college <laughs> and I was like, oh man, Dale, what's the what's the best way to win a fight, man? Oh, you, you're so, cause he was notorious. Like he had, he would fight anybody and you know, they would come to the school and challenge and blah, blah. And he'd find anybody. And I'm like, well, what's the best way this and that. And he's like, the, the best way to win a fight is to not get into fights. I was like, <laughs> kind of answers that man. He's like, he's like, I know what it's like to be punched. I know what it's like to be choked out. I don't like that. He's like, so yeah. I win when I don't get into fights. And I was like, what? He's like, all this other stuff is just in case that you can't get to that end point. And I was like, huh. So I always noodle on that one. But same with the SFMA. Like, it's hard for us, I think, as hands-on clinicians to go like, the best thing for this person or the long-term best thing for this person with low back pain is to change their desk setup or, you know, is to to eat (laughs) two cups of broccoli a day. We want to go like, what is the one adjustment I can do? What is the one, Mm -hmm. what muscle do I need to work? Or what's the secret, ultra secret, uh, you know, rehab exercise is going to take away all the pain. And it's like, uh, getting an hour and a half to sleep more a night. Like, oh, there's no way that'll do anything, you know? I just had, uh, one of my, um, patients, um, chronic low back pain has had injections over the years, started working with them (laughs) and, uh, maybe like two weeks in feeling 80% 80% better, back to walking normal, all this. And he goes, you know what I find the craziest? You haven't touched my back once. <laughs> and, you know, and I was like stepping outside. And you know, one of the first things I did to your point right there, I said, okay, there's there's just tension in your, your midsection, visceral side. What are you eating or drinking? That's not good for you. Let's work through that for a second. I said, are you, you know, what are you intaking? And he's like, Oh, I have a monster every day. I'm like, that is poison in a can. Stop that. (laughs) And he looked at me and he was so sad. And he goes, you know, my wife's been telling me that for years. And I'm like, stop it. And he stopped. And that in itself already like decreased his inflammation and his symptoms, you know? So it is taking more of a holistic look to it. It's not always just muscles and bones. It's what are they doing in the other 23 hours that they're not with you, right? Like that's just as important. Do you mind diving into that a little bit? I mean, you went... uh as somebody knows you went, you went through a battle where you're trying to get, 
you had an injury that was causing a bunch of systemic issues, right? And like, yeah. can you talk a little bit about that from what you which, learned? Which injury are you referring to? I've had a lot of them. Well, if you go to page three, uh, paragraph <laughs> two of your medical history here. No. Yeah. Uh, when you got your concussion. Yeah. So. Um, like, I would my- be interested now looking back on it. What What do you realize? Like, oh my God, that, you know, now I can see the clarity. That makes perfect sense. Or I can see why I lost that mobility. Yeah. So, um, my last concussion, it was my fifth concussion and it was actually a pretty significant one. That's Um, your, that's the, that's going to be your memoirs. My last concussion. My last concussion. (laughs) Um, it was pretty significant and I had difficulty, um, with vision. I difficulty finding words. I had a lot of, um, you know, non-physical symptoms, you know, actually just brain related symptoms for quite some time. Um, and, I underwent a lot of therapy. So physical therapy, I did some chiropractic care. I saw an osteopath and everything. Pause um, real quick. I just want everybody to have the perspective. This is Michelle speaking now. This is someone who is incredibly well-connected and essentially has unlimited access to the best providers on earth. So when you say you got chiropractic, you got physical therapy, like you could consult with, you know, Bernard, who's who's Mm -hmm. up in Vancouver. Like this isn't like... um, it's not like you were cycling through the rank and file of chiropractic and the rank and file of acupuncture, right? Like you saw some, and they know you, they respect you. So all the pressure was off the table that they have to cycle you through in 15 minutes, right? They would dedicate time and and take a good perspective. So even with those superstars, you were still running into these speed bumps. Yeah. And you know, some of it in, in fairness, if I look back, I don't know, if I was fully disclosing everything to all of them either, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, cause at that time, I don't think I even realized um, how multiple symptoms might, that I even was having certain symptoms, if that makes sense and whatnot. But yeah, for sure. I, um, it was Bernard. I definitely spent a lot of time with me, Greg Rowe, you know, all these really great clinicians that I highly trust. And I still would go to, you know, today to, for any symptoms I had. And I was, I got to the point where I was doing fairly well. Like some of my, you know, I had back pain, things like that, that were a result of this. And I overall just felt stiff all the time. Like I felt like I was in a protective state and, you know, it would help short term. And I felt like I was making progress. And then Josh, I think you might've been there with me. I got on a vibration plate at the World Golf Fitness Summit um, for a meeting. um, And all of a sudden, apparently I turned like sheet white and I looked at, it was Dr. Jimmy Ewan. He was standing next to me. He goes, are you okay? And I said, I need to get off this. <laughs> he just looked at me. He's like, yep. And like pulled me off and took me to a separate room. And immediately all of my concussive symptoms came back. So the dizzy, the nausea, seeing triple, like all the like came immediately back. And this is a, you know, almost two years after my trauma and it scared the crap out of me where I was just like, what is going on? And uh, they pulled uh, uh, Dr. Ernst Wick from Austria. He's, you know, um, orthopedic surgeon over there came in and he looked at me and he said, he did a full evaluation on my head and my neck, my cervical spine. And he looked at me and he said, this is not musculoskeletal. You need to go see somebody. You need to have injury recall technique, neuroemotional therapy. Like you're so scared that your body's in a protective mechanism that it's affecting everything you do from your movement to your digestive system to everything else. And I, at the time I'm like, I have no idea what that is, but like I was willing to try anything. So he gave me a referral and I went to see um, this individual and um, 
went through some neuroemotional therapy and almost immediately my symptoms started to subside. And one of the main things, Josh, was him getting me to say with confidence, it's okay to get hit in the head again. Because I was walking around with this feeling like if anything touches me or hits in the head, I'm going to be brain dead. Like I'm not going to recover from that. And so his ability just to say, or my ability to say with confidence, it's okay to get hit in the head. Um, was like our whole strategy for the first like two weeks that I was with them. <laughs> and it made such a difference in how my musculoskeletal, my neurological system reacted to everything that was going on was just being able to move past the fear and function as a normal human being again. And it affected my digestive system. I, I had all these like digestive, like skin, um, they weren't rashes. It was like discoloration, you know, different things that were going on because my whole system was in flux or a state of like panic. Oh, I think you're muted. Do you know the pain researcher, Lorimer Mosley? Yes. Yeah. Have you ever heard his airport story? You kind of reminded me of it. It's okay to get hit in the head. So I guess he was walking with his wife one time. They were hiking in Australia and, you know, everything in Australia essentially wants to kill, kill you. Like the spiders (laughs) are the size of cats and stuff. And so he gets bit in the leg, like out in this field, they're just walking. There's kind of tall grass and he gets bit in the leg. By what they believe was a glancing blow from like the third deadliest snake in the world. Oh, so he feels this like mid, mid tibia and wakes up three days later in the hospital. So his wife saw him go down, drug him over, got him hospital guys. Anyway, so he wakes up, which most people don't wake up. They just die. Right. Anyways. So he says, uh, two years later, he's walking through the airport and he's like carrying his laptop bag and he's got his roller and all this stuff. And, uh, and a person passing him in the security line, their bag happened to brush him exactly like mid tibia, barely. And hit, he goes, holy crap. And he like throws his laptop bag and it ends up on the, you know, when you see like the shops in an airport on the top of the canopy over like the Hudson oh, News no. or something. So he has to later ask the maintenance guy to like go up, hey, can you fix my laptop down? But he said it was just so crazy. Like that tiny little brush in that same area set off this emotional like, it's oh, over. Yeah. I'm going to die. You know, it's and, crazy. Uh, yeah. Right after I started getting treated, um, you might've even been there. We went to Arizona and we were having dinner at a steakhouse and we were sitting outside and I got up to go to the restroom and there are these huge, it was like Texas style, you know, facility, these huge wooden doors. And I went to open the door and a waitress came through and the door like plowed into my head. I swear to God, my head is a magnet for like getting hit <laughs> with things. And I just stood there and froze and like the whole table of instructors that knew my whole story, like they jumped up and they were like, oh my God, are you okay? And I just stood there going, it's okay to get him the head. It's okay to get him the head. And they were just laughing at me. Be great if you're saying that to yourself and then another way just bam. I I was like, it's okay to get in the head. But I'll tell you that made the most, that allowed all of these other fantastic clinicians that I was working with to actually make forward steps, you know, progress forward and maintain them because I was losing that fear of, you know, that subconscious fear that I didn't even realize that I had like as excessively as I did. Yeah. Yeah. From that moment, uh, you know, obviously like our personal experiences do a lot to kind of serve how we serve our patients, but um, have you changed your approach in any way, or do you have any checkpoints along the way to go? Like, is this, you know, something I need to step back from, or is this a oh, systemic yeah. issue? I'm so much more aware of 
Um, when I put my hands on somebody, what's their first reaction? Do they go mm-hmm. into a fearful strategy? Do they go into a protective strategy? Um, much more conversations about previous trauma. Um, you know, especially even as a kid, did you fall off your bike? Did you hit your head? Whatever it may be. Um, and also too, I delved down the road of visceral a lot more. So that's a huge part of mm-hmm. what I do now is visceral manipulation and just mm-hmm. working with the digestive system, how that affects everything. That's Bernard's influence right there. Yeah. Um, no, I just and- picture going back to when you start the SFMA, like, well, let me just tell you 15 years from now, you're going to bet more on the liver than you do on the, yeah. you know, so well, it's crazy. Like, Cause now like mind? I, you're talking about lumbar lock and when I do lumbar lock now, I can truly be pretty accurate and say, I don't think this is like a spine problem. This is something mm-hmm. in the front. This is visceral, you know, and treat that and it changes their movement, you know? Um, but I'm much more aware of people's reactions to the therapy and the treatment. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I put my hands on, cause if you see somebody tense up, there's a reason. Like there's something in their past or their history that might prevent you from moving too far forward because they're afraid and for whatever reason, and they might not even be aware of it. It might just be something that's in their subconscious of some time that they got hurt previously, or, you know, somebody did something to them and there was a traumatic event of some, you know, I had somebody, um, this is a excessive, but, um, I had somebody on my table and I was simply moved to go check their SC joint and he immediately grabbed my hand like aggressively. And I was just like, it was that moment, like I froze, he froze and he's looking at me. He's like, I'm really sorry. Somebody tried to strangle me before. And like your hand coming there, like, and I was like, holy crap, never occurred to me to ask any of those questions. But now I do ask certain questions before I do something. Or more importantly, I vocalize what I'm going to do before I do it to give somebody a little bit of confidence and stuff. And um, so it for sure has changed my, um, my approach to working with individuals. And if I do feel like there's some sort of underlying um, mental trauma that might be affecting our ability to move forward, I refer out to the same person that helped me, you know, like I think you need, and I explained neuroemotional, you know, therapy, this is, you're holding on to some sort of thing that's preventing you from really moving appropriately. Um, I think that go see this person and then we can get back and we can make forward progress. Interesting. Yeah, that that it all goes back to my mind is treating the person as a whole. Like we're not just a shoulder, yeah. we're not just an elbow, we're not just a. And I think right. the faster that we as clinicians start to just wrap our head around that all the systems of the body are in play at any given moment, like, and we need to respect that. Um, right. And I think we'll have much more success with our clinical outcomes if we start looking at those things. Yeah, <laughs> it's. It's just amazing to me along the way, like these things you learn and they're, they're absolutely accurate. And just, you look back at where you started and it's like, it was so elementary, you know, like, (laughs) you know, and, and that's how it should be. Like, um, I, I, I always tell the story in courses, but like in my first SFMA manual, there's at least 15 names in the call, in the margins of when, when we get to a concept, I'd write a name of a person. I'm like, I wonder if that is why Mm -hmm. Michelle Desser didn't get better in my office. Or is that why Harvey didn't, you know, his foot pain never went away. And, um, and, you know, it was a moment I need to connect dots like, oh, wow, that, that pain could be, you know, coming from somewhere else. And that's without thinking emotionally or viscerally or anything like that. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's straight up like red dot, blue dot anatomy, you know, like, so anyways, yeah. It's, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Well, Michelle, I know you're busy and this has been <laughs> both these conversations, the one right before we hit record and this <laughs> yeah. one after. 
have been fantastic. And I really appreciate you, uh, you, you taking the time today. Um, if somebody is like, Hey, I love the, what these guys talk about in the fan club and they want to sign up for a course, uh, Tell us, can you tell the listeners a little bit about, are there live courses? Are there virtual courses? What are the options we got? Yeah, we would love to have you as part of our FMS family. So um, you can check out all the course offerings at um, functionalmovement.com where for SFMA in particular, our healthcare professionals, we offer SFMA level one in three different methods of absorption, right? We have an online course, which is about six hours of online content that walks you through um, all the breakouts, the logic, all the methodology, um, which you can get certified from. We also have our virtual course option, which is time to interact with our instructors. So we have people in our Q&A. You can ask questions. We'll answer those questions. We show live demonstrations. And then we have our live the course. Virtual, by the way, the virtual course will be, be like, hey, it's this Friday from 9 oh, yeah, to whatever. Oh, it's set period like, of time, yeah. Yeah, and it's everybody who signed up for that is coming together at that moment to kind of bounce back. And you can ask questions live like, hey, when, the, when that person just touched their toes, I noticed this, what happened? And we'll get that interaction right there. Yeah. Then our live course is um, a two-day course where you go in on-site with instructors and other attendees and work through the whole process. And really, I think that's the best method of learning it because it's going to give you that hands-on repetition. It's going to stick a little bit longer because uh, you're actually doing it. You're just not watching us do it. You're, you're actually going yeah. through the process. I think that's the best method of learning. Here's the mm -hmm. cool thing. If you sign up for a virtual course or a live course, the online course comes with it. So you'll have that as a reference and you'll be able to go back and you'll watch that at any time. Yeah. So I highly recommend registering for a virtual course or a live course if they fit your schedule because you get access to all that information plus you get the instructor access. So um, we would Absolutely. love to have you join our uh, functional movement family. Um, I hope you can see like Josh and I obviously um, are part of the family and we we talk about it uh, very strongly, it's because it changed our clinical practice. I, I, I always tell people about courses, Josh, I'm not trying to sell you something that I haven't used. Like it literally yeah. changed the course of my clinical practice. It was practice. the most impactful course I have ever taken for my agreed for my uh, professional license ever. Still to this day, it, it, ch it changed everything. It's just a standard operating procedure, yeah. right? And by the way, we'll, just so that people know, if you if you're looking at the functional movement um, website, and I'm saying this because you know we forget how much we know. If yeah. you're looking at, there's the FMS course and the SFMA course. Michelle mm -hmm. said, you know, SFMA is for clinicians. The big difference is the FMS um, is a series of movements you ask a person to do. And if they have pain, then we say, go to the SFMA, right? The reason we would say most clinicians should take the SFMA is most of the people, I would say almost all the people walk in your office already have pain and are saying, hey, I want to solve the pain you wouldn't use the FMS in that situation. So if you're like, Hey, which course should I do? And this and that go for the SFMA. If 90% or more of the people walking in your office go, I have low back pain. I have neck pain. I have shoulder pain. Cause we're already starting with that assumption that they have pain. Yeah. And then if people are looking at SFMA level one or two, can you kind of quickly just give the difference between those two? For sure. The SFMA level one is that diagnostic algorithm, right? So how to get from looking at their global movement down into specific diagnosis of 
you know, maybe they have some mobility limitations or maybe it's motor control. They don't know how to sequence that movement. They have the mobility. They just don't know how to control it. So right. it gives us a differential diagnosis of how they're moving, which then you can take that list and you can say, okay, here's their main complaint of pain. Here's what I think might be affecting that. And you can start to provide your interventions and be efficient getting them mm-hmm. out of that painful strategy. Now, the SFMA level two picks up where the level one left off, right? It's going to continue um, a diagnostic algorithm for your local biomechanical examination when you find some mobility restrictions. But more importantly, I think this is where we kind of set ourselves aside from some other companies. I think we're the best at motor learning concepts and the research behind motor learning and how to implement that in. Motor learning is not the same as strength training, and there's certain rules that go with motor learning. It's It's training the brain. We're trying to teach you how to figure out the yep. math equation for movement. And it's a little bit different than hypertrophy of muscles, right? So I think the level two, we show you all our favorite money moves and show you all the suggestions for all the patterns and teach you how to use it and implement it correctly. So let me go back because, you know, I when I got first introduced this long before I was an instructor, some of these statements and stuff, I was like, what do you mean by, I, I need to tease those out. When Michelle says like local biomechanical testing, um, I think that term's thrown around, but if you look at something like, let's say that you, in the SFMA, you come to the left hip and you find out that the left hip has a mobility dysfunction. It does not extend. Let's just use that as one motion, right? What local biomechanical testing is doing is saying, all right, it doesn't extend. Is that a problem, actually a joint problem? Like, is there a bony prominence that's, you know, or, or um, a, a uh, osteophyte that's in the way? Is it the capsule shortening? Is it Michelle's favorite, a visceral issue that's <laughs> not allowing that uh, extension? Is it the fact that the um, the glute max is not producing sufficient force? Like all of those are options. I mean, at the hip, there's got to be 25 possibilities of why it's not extending, right? And what that course does is say, all right, let's break down the hip and then go through a process to find out what is which one of those is really the thing you need to focus on and the reason of that is if you go to dry needle the joint and really it's a visceral issue, you're not going to get a huge change. So instead knowing, hey, it's, it's visceral will help you go, okay, well, then I'm not going to waste my time doing uh, uh, dry needling or whatever. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't, that's not to say dry needling is not wildly effective in other places. When you know that's what they need, it's incredible how effective it is. So you're in that level two, that biomechanical testing is looking at each joint and saying, how do I peel back the layers to know exactly the one thing that's going to make the biggest difference. Second thing, when Michelle was talking about motor learning, then it's not strength training. Again, I think once you're on the other side of it, you're like, oh, that's so different. Here'd be a good way to know if maybe you should refine your motor learning skills. If you find yourself offering corrections to a person to get them to do an exercise, if you get to the number three, you've corrected them three times and nothing's changing, understanding the concepts of motor learning will help you overcome that. Like you realize, okay, this isn't that they don't understand that that's, you know, it's not that I haven't good, give, given good instructions. It's something else in the system is not working. Maybe it's, they're not in the right posture that, you know, they don't understand. They, they, they can't create the feeling that you want them to have. There are a lot of options, but that's what motor learning teaches you is you don't have to correct as often. In fact, they self-correct a lot because they realize what the hell they're trying to do. So I just want to share that because I'm hoping that there are people listening to this that have never, ever been exposed to any of the concepts in SMA are like, hey, I want to take it. 
but it, there's a ton of information and it's going to change a lot of paradigms. It's like switching from PC to Mac, right? It's like, hey, we're just going to change your entire operating system. That's it. And then we want you to flourish. But once you're on that side, you're like, I would never go back. It's We know, but sometimes we're a little bit of a fan club. So, yeah. Anyways, a little bit of a fan club. We're obviously a big fan club. Come on yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, it's only an audio podcast, but you can't see I'm literally wearing... <laughs> I'm not stuff. even wearing a logo right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm wearing the company logo. So yeah, yeah. we love it. But anyways, um, yeah. So if you're looking for those courses, it's functionalmovement.com. And uh, they're, they're, we're starting to see... I don't know. There's quite a few live courses coming up. I know I'm teaching one in Alabama. Um, where where yeah, else are we? We have some coming up in Chicago at the end of March. We have, uh, gosh, we have some in California coming up. Yeah. Um, Chicago area. Um, Orlando. Denver. Is that coming? Um, that already heard. Yeah, already heard. Okay. Um, uh, Rhode yeah. Island area. You know, so there's cool. a bunch you can visit on the. And you know, Josh. Um, my favorite part of my job is not necessarily coordinating the education, but it's supporting our membership and it's supporting all the people who are interested in mm -hmm. these concepts. And so anybody listening is welcome to, you know, reach out to me, email me. It's Michelle, as you said, one L, no hell in my name. So Michelle at functionalmovement.com, or you can email support at functionalmovement.com with any questions you might have or anything we can help with. Mm -hmm. And I'm always happy to have conversations with, with you just about the concepts and how it might benefit your business, your clinical practice. Yeah. And I think just your, your approach, because I think early on, one of the things, if there's anybody listening, you know, I'm sure you get that super complicated case when you're early in practice, Michelle, and it's just like, oh my God, this person has so much pain and they can't do anything. And what do I do? Mm -hmm. And it gives you the confidence to have that starting point to say, like, follow the checklist, just follow yep. the checklist, just follow the checklist. I do the and, same thing every time. There's nothing yeah. sexy about it. <laughs> yeah. And it's incredibly boring, but you know what? The best pilots in the world, follow the checklist. The best mm -hmm. uh, F1 drivers. I was watching that F1 drive to survive thing on Netflix and that they were showing one of the drivers. He later wins the championship. And every time he gets in the car, every time he's prepping, he does the same thing. It's like, da, 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 da. and it's, you just, every once in a while, you get an extra point for doing that stuff. And, you know, it, it just works. So anyway, Formula One's probably the best at standard operating procedures right there. Yeah. So Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they have like literally 0.5 the, seconds to get the car back on. The well, that's a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. Like 0.5 seconds is the difference between the best crew uh, <laughs> yeah. in a pit change and the worst. So yeah. Anyways. All right. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for the time today. Have a wonderful uh, week and hopefully we see each other out on the road soon. Awesome. Thanks, Josh, for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And as we always say, this is Dr. Josh Titus saying, go out there, maximize your license and live the life you dream of. Thanks, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening to Clinic Gym Radio. If you're looking for more information about me, about us, about our programs, then just head to clinicgymhybrid.com. Again, that's clinic gymhybrid.com. You can check us out there. Got our accelerator program and a few other programs that will help you get up and running as quickly as possible and making more money while providing excellent active therapy to your patients.